that that intro is a little bit creepy. Uh, kind of creeps me out a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, again, uh, yeah. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome to Family Church. Like Kyle said, we're glad that you're here. Uh, glad you decided to come and hang out with us this morning as we. Uh, Praise and worship through uh, the sharing of God's word. We are concluding a short series we began a couple of weeks ago titled When the Devil Knocks. And the purpose of this series is to help us recognize and understand that following Jesus is at times a struggle. Uh, and I, we mentioned this in, early on, but uh, kind of a frightening statistic is that you know when 61% of Christians, quote unquote, don't believe there's a devil, that's kind of interesting, right? Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, as far as the devil's concerned, uh, he loves that. He loves that. I mean, because his work's already, uh, he, that saves him his work. He doesn't have, he can, he can focus on other people like you, <laughs> who do believe he exists, right? But seriously, I, that, that's part of the, 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 the main step is, is recognizing, man, there isn't enemy out there. Uh, the Bible calls him the devil, and he has his sight set on you. Now, I will say my original plan, Full disclosure here. My original plan was to conclude this series by talking about the Antichrist. A couple weeks ago, in, in, in week one of the series, I mentioned this personality that will emerge at the end of the ages who will seemingly have all the answers to the world's problems. And he's going to be very convincing. He's going to be very persuasive. He's going to be very charismatic. Some might even consider him charming. Uh, and John identifies this personality as the Antichrist, and he's actually given some other titles in other places in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, he even appears in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. In describing his prophetic vision, Daniel mentions a little horn in this vision, and most Bible scholars believe that that is a reference to the Antichrist. In Paul's second letter, second epistle to the Thessalonians, he mentions this person called the man of sin. That also is a reference to the Antichrist. But here's the deal. Even though the Antichrist is certainly an intriguing topic to study, it is a real person, the truth is no one knows for sure who he is, right? I mean, we've heard a lot of speculation, right? Uh, my personal opinion is he is alive and he's on this planet right now, but that's just my opinion. I can't, I can't prove it, all right? Just kind of looking at the timetable of things that are happening. I believe he is alive and he's on this planet right now. But, you know, I don't want to speculate who it might be, but, but listen, even if we were to able to identify the Antichrist, so what? And this is this was kind of the tipping scales to, to kind of change the, the the message. So what if we could identify him? That's not going to help us here and now in our fight with the devil, right? So I want to focus on something that we do know more about, and what we do know is there's an enemy out there who has set his sights on us. And Jesus, if we're to believe Jesus, this enemy has a threefold strategy against us: kill, steal, destroy. That's all he wants to do, right? So I want to conclude our series this morning talking about something that will hopefully help us in our battle against our adversary, the devil. And one weapon that God has given us in our battle with the devil when he comes knocking is the weapon of worship. Now, perhaps you've never thought about worship as a weapon that you could use in a battle with the devil. Or maybe you didn't realize, let me back up even before that, maybe you didn't realize that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were also enlisting in his army. Yeah. Last week, Kyle mentioned the passage in Ephesians 6 where the Apostle Paul mentions some of the standard-issued military attire that God makes available to use in our battle with the devil and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's how Paul puts it. And he mentions things like the belt of truth, helmet of salvation, right? We, we've heard of the, the armor of God. How many of you heard that? You know, if you went to VBS, you probably even sing about the armor of God. Paul mentions these things that, that he makes available to us in our battle with the enemy, right? So that right there should answer any question about whether or not following Jesus includes conflict and warfare. 
Why would Paul mention that if, if that isn't something that we would need? See, when I got saved, I sort of thought I'd spend the rest of my life walking beside still waters, lying in green pastures, right? as the psalmist said. I had no idea that by receiving Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I was enlisting in an army. And it didn't take very long at all to realize that following Jesus is not as passive as I thought it would be. In fact, if you've been following Jesus for very long at all, you know that. You know that to be true, right? In fact, I've learned that Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've also discovered that I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, which, which presumes that ungodly and unseen forces are working against me. But here's what we need to understand. This battle, this confrontation with the devil, is an unconventional battle. It's an unconventional battle. Paul makes that clear in verse 12 of Ephesians 6. Again, Kyle read this last week, Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, we're not used to this type of fighting. We're used to fighting things we can see, touch, and hear, right? Our battle with the devil is unlike any other battle or conflict we face. And frankly, that's what gets us into trouble. Because we're used to fighting in the, in the physical realm, right? When we find ourselves in conflict with another person, when in reality there's an unseen force behind the scenes creating an environment of resentment, jealousy, suspicion, right? Anger, jealousy, lust, you name it. I'm not saying that anytime someone does something to hurt you or says something hurtful about you that they're demon-possessed. No, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that don't underestimate the enemy strategy of using other people, right? Even people close to you to carry out his strategy against you. Because he'll do that. And, and oftentimes, it's, they don't even know they're being used by the enemy. All right? So it's not like they're being malicious either. And it's hard because at least in the physical realm, we know what we're dealing with, right? Not so in the spiritual realm, which is one reason for doing this series is to help inform and better equip us in our battle with the devil and his tactics. And it will require, everyone listen to me because this is important. If I had a thesis statement to my sermon, it would be this next statement right here. It will take unconventional strategy to defeat an unconventional enemy. Okay? Because he is an unconventional enemy. So it's going to take an unconventional strategy. And this unconventional strategy is never more apparent than in an event that happened to God's people many years ago when they found themselves in a situation where the devil was knocking on their door, so to speak, right? And their very lives were at stake. But before we get into our text for this morning, I want us to briefly look at a verse that I mentioned in week one of our study, and Kyle even mentioned this verse last week when he shared. It's an important verse that will help us in our battle with the devil when he comes knocking. But the reality is, the interesting thing about this verse is uh, this was written about 2,300 years after the story that we're going to look at in the Old Testament. All right? Now, just kind of file that away. That's important to know. Because we're actually going to see how a king used this strategy that James mentioned in James 4, 7, 2,300 years before he even said it. There's a king that used this strategy successfully. So uh, the, the, the statement that we're going to read, uh, James' instructions for what to do when the devil comes knocking on our door, James 4, verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, by the way, you could almost put a third step on there. Uh, most people leave off. You know what the beginning of verse 8 says? Does anyone know what it says? It, it, it would fit right in here with these steps. We submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and the very first part of verse 8 says, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Right? 
So you could almost put that in there as well. Here, James gives us some very basic and simple instructions for how to defeat the devil. It's a twofold process that, unfortunately, uh, many people either overlook or neglect uh, that first step. In fact, I, can, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone try to quote this verse uh, and, and, and they leave off that first part, which is unfortunate because these instructions are a package deal, right? It's a two-step process that won't work unless both steps are taken. If we ever hope to overcome the devil, it will require two things of us. Submit to God, resist the devil. I've heard people say, did the Bible say that? Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. No, no, no. It says that, but what does it say before that? Yeah, that's a two-fold process, right? Here's the deal. You can't resist without doing step one, submitting to God, right? A disobedient or unsubmissive believer will never see victory. You can't resist sin if you haven't first submitted to God. Right? The biblical concept of submission is to place oneself under the authority of another. When we submit to God, we give ourselves to his authority and control. God does not require us to submit because he's a tyrant or because he feels threatened. Right? No, he does this because he's a loving father and he knows what's best for us. Right? So, how does one submit to God? What does that look like? Well, it actually can be seen in a lot of different ways. We can submit to God through obedience. We submit by keeping his commandments. But perhaps the most practical way that we can submit to God is by simply seeking him and worshiping him. There is no more practical, easier way to submit to God than just by acknowledging who he is in our lives. In other words, worshiping him, recognizing him for who he is. That is an act of submission, people. So, open in your Bibles, open your Bible... Uh, Bible, uh, you version Bible app to Second Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to read about a time in history when the devil came knocking on the door of God's people. And in the natural, there was no way this was going to turn out good for God's people. Right? Anyone ever found yourself in a situation like that where we're in the natural, barring a, I'm, I'm not talking about you had, you know, plan B, plan C. Because sometimes we have those, it's like, well, you know, I guess if God doesn't come through, I could always do this. Right? No, no, no. No, I'm talking about those times when there is no backup. I mean, you know, it's like if God doesn't show up, that's it. Right? Me, I'm the only one that's ever. Man, you almost live pretty righteous then, I guess. I don't know. But that's, that's where God's people found themselves. If God didn't come through, things weren't going to look good for them. Alright? So, uh, on this, uh, this particular story, I've divided up into five parts, and if you uh, go to the website, familychurch.xyz and down to the sermon notes or whatever. Uh, you can actually follow along with the outline. You can actually write notes in there and then send them to yourselves later, okay? So that's kind of a cool thing. So this is divided up into five parts, and all of the parts begin with the letter P. Look at that. Your pastor did you a solid there. Made it easy for you, right, to remember these things, right? Here we go. Number one, the problem. Second Chronicles 20, verses 1 through 4. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites... And with them some of the Midianites and the Parasites and whatever else. All these ites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon, Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. So, start out. Je Jehoshaphat gets uh, uh, th this king who has a name that only God and a mother could love. Uh, Jehoshaphat, he gets this report that three of the nations that border them, the Amorites, Moabites, and those of Mount Seir, Seir, which was the capital of Edom, so the Edomites, right? All three of these nations have aligned themselves together and are coming against God's people. This, this would have been Judah, all right, the southern kingdom and the people of God. And barring a miracle, there would be no more nation by that time tomorrow unless God intervenes. And King Jehoshaphat, as, as we're going to see here, will come 
to seek the face of God. But before that, watch this, before Jehoshaphat cries out to God and assembles the people together, he has a very human, a very natural reaction to this devastating, threatening news. And I want us to, to see how the Bible reports him being at that time because I think it will help us see ourselves and it will help us see how to put into motion James' instructions to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. So this morning, God wants us to know that one way that he brings victory in our battle with the devil is through worship, right? Now, I, I know that, that in the natural, those two words seem about as diametrically opposed as any two words could be. Worship and warfare. How, how do you connect those two dots? I mean, come on. Worship takes place in a sanctuary, a church, where there's peace and serenity, right? Warfare takes place in a bunker, out on a front line somewhere with military hardware and, and weaponry in use, right? One is surrounded with explosions, another, and the other is like a solitude of silence. And yet the scripture links them so closely together. I'd like for you to see them in that context as well. Because listen, the victory God's people experienced that day happened because they trusted in a very unconventional strategy. And that was worship. And if we learn to engage the devil the same way, when he comes knocking on our door, we too can be victorious as well. And hopefully we'll see that. Now, with you, it might not be a nation that's at risk. Uh, with you, it might be a physical attack, right? Maybe you got the notice from the oncologist that, uh, barring a miracle, you got two years. That might be it, max. Right? Maybe it's uh, maybe it's an attack on your marriage. Right? Maybe your spouse has already told you, if things don't change within the next few months, they're out of there. See, we all have our own threatening situations. It might not be a physical battle, but we all have these battles. Right? Maybe it's the maybe the enemy's marching against your finances. You know, you, you've crunched the numbers, you've added up everywhere you know how, and barring a miracle, and you're going to go under in just a few months. You have no place to go. Just like the enemy marched on the nation of God's people here, so also does the enemy come marching on God's people today. And in the natural, it doesn't look good at all. So I want you to see Jehoshaphat in the same situation that many times we find ourselves in, right? Or that we will, if we, if we haven't, we will or we have at some time, right? Because Jehoshaphat's response here models for us points of understanding for how we should respond when the enemy comes knocking, all right? Now, notice here, the first thing he did, he feared. Now, let me tell you something, people. It doesn't say he feared God. He did, but here, you know what he's saying? It's that he's scared. He was afraid of cat. Now, the reason I want to point that out is because I want us to, you know, I think sometimes, I haven't run into anyone like this in a long time, but I think sometimes there, there are, you know, these really super spiritual people, right? These, these Christian ninja type people that think they know it all. And, 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 you know, they, they would have you believe that, man, if, if you showed any flinching at all, any doubt at all, that's it. Your history. You know? Like, you can't show any, because, you know, fear, fear is the opposite of faith, right? So you can't show any fear at all. No! Good for Jehoshaphat. You know, I, I mean, I, I actually knew someone one time, and it just used to irk me. But, you know, they, they would say, you know, oh, you kids back from the dentist. You know, we got three kids that have 15 cavities. Praise God. No, no, praise God for that. Oh, yeah, I just found out, you know, yeah, our husband just, you know, wrecked the new pickup. You know, it's going to be $2,000. Bless the Lord. He's so good. No. No, it's okay to let your feelings out there. But seriously, there, there are these super spiritual Christians that would make you think that, man, you show any fear at all, any flip, man, that's, that's it, your history. No, not at all, not at all. That's, that's not 
Fear in the face of a sudden crisis does not disqualify us as a person of faith. Understand that, all right? It's okay to fear. The key is you can't stay there. We can't stay there, right? And Jehoshaphat didn't stay there, right? So I like that because it shows that there's hope for me. Because I don't always respond in a positive way when I get devastating news like that. In fact, I get a little ticked at God, frankly, right? So it's okay to be afraid sometimes. That does not disqualify us as a person of faith. Uh, after that, point number one, Jehoshaphat feared. He was scared. In the second part, thing that he did, he submitted to God. He, and his initial response was, oh, man, OMG. Look at those armies out there. We don't stand a chance, right? But then look what he did. He submitted to God. And the way he submitted to God is, watch this, set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, this is huge. Here's why. Fear causes us to make rash and unwise decisions. When Jehoshaphat got this news that the enemy was knocking on their door, says he got scared. Got scared. Now, what's amazing to me is what Jehoshaphat did after that initial jolt of fear struck him. He, he proclaimed a fast throughout the nation and said, hey, we need to seek God here, right? Now, keep in mind, it's not like, no, remember, it's not like he didn't have other resources. It's not like he didn't have other options. He had economic resources. I mean, Judah was a pretty, you know, happening nation, right? God had blessed them. So it's not like he didn't have other options. He had economic resources. He could have sent some, he could have sent some people to the, the temple and said, uh, hey, uh, get some gold, some silver, some of those precious uh, jewels, and uh, then, then go, get, go to the barn, get some animals, and uh, let, let's, let's take this stuff out there to the enemy and see if we can uh, offer them this, you know, pay, and then we'll pay tribute annually once a year if they'll just leave us alone. He could have done that. Because that's what some kings did. I mean, that, as, as a last recourse, what else are they going to do? He could have done that. He could have called the people together, sent out a, a tribute package, say, look, if you leave us alone, we'll give you this, and we'll pay you, give you annual tribute, right? He had military resources. He could have called everyone together, all right, said, okay, folks, here's what's going on. We need to batten down the hatches. Let's get all the military hardware, weaponry out. Let's fall into position. Have a parade as a show of strength. At least try to put up a good st upper stiff lip, right? You know, you know, put up a good front. You know, don't want the people to panic, right? So it's not like he didn't have options here. The point is, look, we're not dealing with a rookie here, right? This wasn't Jehoshaphat's first rodeo. He was a seasoned king. All right, we're dealing with a man who had many options available to him. Yet, look what he did. He declared a fast and set himself to seek God. All right. People don't, listen, listen to me. People don't declare a fast unless they believe in the spiritual realm. I mean, there's health reasons, sure, but in, in talking about it from a Christian perspective, no. People don't declare, declare a fast unless they believe in the spiritual realm, right? And King Jehoshaphat recognized that very important truth. And here's the important truth, and you need to understand this. Anything, anything that threatens our existence is at its root spiritual, people. And I'm not just being, you know, you know me, I, I don't, I don't gravitate towards the spiritual heebie-jeebie stuff. That is a fact. Anything that threatens our existence is at its root spiritual. That's a fact, okay? And that must be settled in our mind. Right? When King Jehoshaphat heard they were surrounded on all sides by the enemy, enemies knocking on their door, his, his initial response was, oh, man, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right? But 
To his credit, he didn't stay there. After that initial jolt of fear hit him, he composed himself, and his, front, his first line of defense was exactly what James, 2,300 years later, what James said we should do when the devil comes knocking on the door. He humbled himself. He submitted to the Lord. How? By seeking God. But he didn't just seek the Lord. He sought the Lord with a fast. And I'm telling you, folks, there is no better way Right? There's no better example of humbling ourselves before the Lord than we seek the Lord with a fast and de deny our physical desires. Can I be real honest? I'm not a good faster. In fact, you could call me a slow faster. Right? Every now and then you meet a weird, weird Christian. Oh, I just love to fast. I'm like, no, I, I, I've never met someone like that. But he declared a fast. That was his way of submitting to God, like James said 29 years later. So it's not like Jehoshaphat didn't have any options. He did. They just weren't very good options. See, one of the problems with operating from a, from a position of fear is we don't see things clearly. When we're operating out of fear, all of our options look better than they really are. Because we don't see straight, Right? And look, you know this from experience. We don't always make the best decisions when we're scared, desperate, or backed in a corner, do we? Because we're looking for the first easiest thing to do. Sometimes that might be the right thing to do. Sometimes it might not be the right thing to do. We make some of our worst decisions, think about this, when we're scared. Right? But here's what we need to understand about fasting. Fasting is not strong-arming God. I think some people kind of view, people say, well, you know, I don't have much faith. But, you know, I can, I can not eat for a few days, and then maybe God will realize I'm really serious about this. I, I think some people approach fasting from that perspective. But understand, fasting isn't our way of, you know, twisting God's arm. Oh, they're fasting. That they, they really mean business. I better do something for them. No, no. Fasting is an entry subject we don't have the time to develop. But I'm going to tell you two things about fasting, and then maybe I'll do a sermon on it at a later time. But if we knew nothing else about fasting than these two things, it would be enough. So let me tell you these two things about fasting. And these are the two things that Jesus said about it. Okay? If we knew nothing else than what Jesus said about it, it would be enough. And here's what he said. First, he said the Latter-day Church would do it. Jesus specifically said that during the last days, his church would fast on a regular basis. He said that. Second, Jesus said there are certain spiritual forces that could not be broken apart from fasting. So basically, here's what Jesus said. The church would do it. He expected the church to do it. And there's times when certain spiritual forces can only be broken through fasting. That's what he said about it. So, so by declaring a fast, King Jehoshaphat was essentially recognizing that the battle that they were about to face was a spiritual, was spiritual in nature. Their priority was to take a line of spiritual counterattack against what was a very visible physical attack. Even though their life was threatened in the visible realm, Jehoshaphat recognized that the root of the threat was spiritual in nature. So he declares a fast. After calling the people together, he declares a fast. And then he calls out to God in prayer. And this is point number two, the prayer. The problem was they were surrounded by the enemy and he was knocking on their door. All right? The second P, prayer. This is the prayer. All right? After after calling the people together, declaring a fast, all right, we're going to set aside a time of fast and we're going to seek God. And in the assemblies, at some point during that meeting, a prophet spoke up. All right, let's read it in verses 5 to 13. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? 
You rule over the, the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that one is, no one is able to, none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. These, these are the armies that were surrounding them. Whom, this is interesting, we'll come back to Whom you, right, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they are rewarding us, or they reward us by coming to drive out your possession which you have given us to inherit. Our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. So, after calling the people together, he says, all right, folks, uh, we've got to fast. You know, we've got enemies surrounding us and knocking on our door. So we need to uh, seek God and spend some time fasting. And then he give, offers this prayer. Now, this, this, is, this prayer is a fascinating study because there's two things I want to underscore in this prayer. First, this prayer is a study in how faith generates in those who know how to submit to and call out to God. It's a study in how faith generates in those who know how to submit to and call out to God. See, faith isn't something that we talk ourselves into. right? It's something that comes on the basis of what we know to be true about God. We need, that's, that's an important point, right? Sometimes when I hear people pray, I need to be careful here. But I, sometimes when I hear people pray, it almost seems as if they're trying to talk themselves into believing what they're praying. I, I say that because of oftentimes some of the repetition I hear in people's prayers. Someone with too much time on their hands did some research and discovered the three most spoken words in people's prayer are just, really, and Father God. Those are the three most spoken words in anyone's prayer, right? And uh, so I happen to see, <laughs> I happen to see a cartoon uh, that uh, kind of is, is a part of that article, uh, and uh, it uh, said something like, "Show this person praying," and it said. Uh, Father God, I just really pray, I really hope that you would, Father God, uh, help me to not say Father God and Justin really so much when I pray. Really, I'm really praying, Father God. That <laughs> So it's kind of a humorous thing. And look, if you say any of those words, I'm not judging. All right? My point is, I think sometimes we really don't have the right posture when we go to the Lord in prayer. Because if we understood who it was we're praying to, I think it would kind of change our approach and we wouldn't be so inclined to kind of, kind of glibly, you know, shoot out these repetitious terms, you know, like we're trying to talk ourselves, you know, build up some faith. Now, when you look at Jehoshaphat's prayer here, right, it, it, it's, it's fascinating because he's very honest with God, right? He's very honest with God. And, and I think that when, when he, he says that, in verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Now notice, first of all, he declares the rulership and majesty and power of God. No, no, Father God, really, just there. No, he, he's declaring what he knows to be true about God. And I'm telling you, folks, if you want to stand any chance against the devil when he comes knocking, you need to settle in your mind who it is 
that we serve. Okay? We need to understand that. Right? Basically, what Jehoshaphat's doing here, he's, he's kind of following the model that when, one day the, Jesus, uh, the, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. Remember that? And from that we get the Lord's Prayer. And the very first thing is, hallowed be, that, that's what Jehoshaphat, he's hallowing God's name, just like Jesus said to do. Again, what, 2,000 years before Jesus gave the pattern. He's just hallowing God's name. He's setting that foundation. He's, he's, rec- he's, he's letting God, I understand who I'm talking with here, right? Because when this type of faith-based prayer and praise is taking place, you can march a choir out in front of the enemy, and it'll be victorious. The second thing about this prayer that I wanted to underscore is that it was based on things Jehoshaphat had seen God do before. All right, two things about that prayer that we need to understand. First, it was based on his understanding of who God really was, you know, the God of the universe. And it was based on things he had seen God do on their behalf before, right? And it's not that we need to remind God what he's done for us. He knows. It's that we need to be reminded that, yes, our God's a faithful God. He came for me. He came through for me before. He'll come through for me again. All right? That's the power of that, right? And then verse 7, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? So he, he makes mention of, of the added aggravation, all right, of knowing that they could have driven out these enemy nations years before. Basically what he said there was just like, you know what? We had a chance to drive these enemy nations that are surrounding us now. God, we had a chance to drive them out when we took possessions of the prom- possession of the promise, but you wouldn't let us do it, and he wouldn't. So you talk about an unfair situation there. I mean, that's a prime place to say, God, where's the fairness in that? Anyone ever ask God about what's fair? Hey, it's okay to ask God about what's fair. Here's the deal. You do it at the foot of the cross. Because the cross kind of puts fairness in perspective, doesn't it? He's okay asking questions about fairness. You just got to come to the foot of the cross and look up at him and then say, okay, let's talk about fairness, all right? But basically, yeah, they... They could have avoided that because years before they had a chance to drive those enemy nations out. God wouldn't let them. And so it's not, and now God, thanks for nothing, they're out here on our door knocking. That's kind of what Jehoshaphat is saying there. Right? Verse 10 and 11, Now behold the men of Ammon and Moab of Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade <laughs> when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they're, look how they're paying us back now, God. They're coming into this land that you promised Abraham and us. All right? All right. Then verse 13. <laughs> Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives. How pathetic is that? As if the story needed another fitting touch there. And there, there's everyone standing there. Kids, grandkids, the little ones, babies. All right? By that time tomorrow, if God didn't intervene, they're all dead. That was their situation. So that's the prayer. What about the prophecy? Sometime after the Jehoshaphat praised this prayer, it says here, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Metaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. All right, that, that, when, when it says son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, that's just the author's way of saying, look, this guy's legit. He, he, they're, they're basically saying this, this is a prophet who came from a prophet whose dad was a prophet, whose grandpa was a, see that's what it's saying there, it's letting us know that this isn't some fly by night you know come out you know Johnny come lately just saying oh I think God's trying to say this, no this is coming through a prophet who has a history 
of speaking for God and speaking accurately for God. That, that's what it means when it says son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. All right, Jehoshaphat, he's afraid. He calls the people together. We need to fast. We need to seek God. He prays a prayer. Sometime at the end of that prayer, all of a sudden this prophet, Jehaziel, speaks up. And this is a word from the Lord. All right? And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up uh, by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley. So two things there. He says, time, tomorrow, and where? You'll find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. That was a mantra for God's people, and the first time that someone spoke it, it was when Moses was standing by the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army was bearing down on him, and, and, and they had no options. And God gave said, stretch your hand out, and it says, and stand by and see the salvation, the exact same phrase. Exact same phrase, when Moses stood there by the... So God's people were familiar with that. That, that was a call to uh, a victory. That was like the victory chant, right? says, all right, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Oh, Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be just... Twice, he's, this is the second time he said that. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now, please note, the prophecy starts out with two important points. First, don't be, don't, don't fear or be dismayed, which hit the nail on the head because that's exactly what they were tempted to do, be fearful and dismayed. So right up front, the Lord addresses their greatest need, fear. Second, the battle is not yours, but God's, right? Jehaziel actual, actually reemphasizes those two things later on at the end of the prophecy in verse 17, all right? But again, verse 16 underscores those two important points. When? Tomorrow? Where? At the end of the valley, east of the wilderness. So the problem was they were surrounded by, on all sides by the enemy, right? Who's knocking on their door. The, the prayer was a faith-building prayer based on their understanding of who God was and what God had done for them in the past. The prophecy was that God would fight for them and they were to stand by and see the salvation of God. And then the fourth P is the plan. What's the plan here? Verses 20 to 23. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing praise and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed, for the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction, and when they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. All right. So somehow, miraculously, uh, these armies turned on each other. Whoa. Coincidence, right? That's, what, that's a coincidence. No. No. Verse 21, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, and they went before the army. They sent, you see what they did? They sent the choir and the worship band out in front of the army. When you're battling a conventional enemy, you've got to use unconventional strategy. Right? Why did he do that? 
It wasn't presumption. It was because, verse 17, you, you won't need to fight. The reason he sent the choir out in front of the army was because the word God said you're not going to need to fight. Right? But notice the first part of verse 21. When he had counsel with the people, that's a huge statement because it shows us the wisdom of Jehoshaphat. Remember, this wasn't his first rodeo, right? He understood fully the magnitude of the situation. But even though the Lord had spoken specific instructions to them the day before, the next day, one of the first things, and this is really a smart thing, Jehoshaphat calls the people together, says, all right, all right, now let's, let's, let's kind of, uh, let's kind of remind ourselves what's going on here, right? That's a wise thing because, you know, sometimes you can on a Sunday morning, and maybe you're, you know, devil's been knocking on your door, and you're feeling a little bit beat down, and then you hear a, a very inspiring message by your excellent pastor, and, and you're built up, and you're encouraged, and then you go home, and tomorrow morning you wake up, and it's like, oh no, you still hear the knocking, devil's still there, right? So I think that's what that's what Jehoshaphat's doing here. It's like, yeah, they when they all went home the night before, they were all encouraged. Yeah, we're surrounded, but the word of the Lord is, He's going to fight for us. So that, but then you sleep, you get up, you wipe the sleep out of your eyes. What's, what's going on? Oh, yeah, that's right. We're still surrounded by the enemy, right? So he does what he calls them together. Says, "All right, remember, the bad news is we're surrounded, but the good news is God's going to fight for us, right?" Rallies the troops, gets them together, right? So that's what he says. All right, in talking with my advisors, here's how we're going to fight them. The army need all our military. I need them lined up right in front of the gate there. All right. Now, but leave, leave some room in front. Got to leave some room in front. All right. All right, now that the army's lined up, I need the worship band and the singers to go out there in front of them. And surely there had to be at least one worship singer, one singer that said, what did he say? This, that's not right. Surely he wants us behind the army, right? Did, did, did he say in front? Because if he said in front, I think, laryngitis, I don't think I'm not going to be able to sing today. The reason he sent the choir and worship band out in front is because that was the world you're not going to need to fight. Right? You're not going to need to fight. See, and, and, and the, this is their way. He's already submitted. This is their way of resisting the devil, the second part of that, those instructions. This was his way of resisting the devil. Now, I think we typically understand resistance as a passive defensive posture where we kind of hunker down, dig in, and stand our ground. But, you know, there are times when resistance can be active. Right? Can be an active offensive posture. And this is one of those. Years ago in the uh, Denver Post, uh, there was an article about the frustrations that many of the sheep ranchers in the Rocky Mountains were having uh, with coyotes uh, killing their, their sheep. Right? And one rancher in particular, a lady by the name of Lexi Lowler, was hit particularly hard by the coyotes. So in desperation, Lexi tried just about everything to, to try and stop these crafty, wily coyotes from killing her sheep. Right? She used odor spray. She used uh, uh, decoy scare coyotes. She put battery-operated radios near them, making noise. Uh, she even changed her schedule to where she would corral them at night and herd them during the day, but all to no avail. Right? She kept losing some sheep to the coyotes. <clears throat> one year, she lost, she lost an average of one sheep per week. Right? So over 50 sheep in one year. Right? Then someone told her, said, you know what? You need to get a llama. She's like, what? So yeah, yeah, you need to put a llama out there with your herd of sheep, which sounded crazy until she tried it. All right? Here's what she said. Quote, llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything, she said. When they see something, they put their head up and walk straight toward it. 
That is aggressive behavior as far as the coyote is concerned, and they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. Folks, church needs more llamas. Turn to the person next to you, and I don't know what, how do you, like a llama? What's a llama sound like when you're, all right? Seriously, we we need to take our stand in Christ. You know why? Because Satan is an opportunist too, just like the coyote. Whatever he does to us, it's because we've given him that opportunity. Right? In the natural, we're no match for the devil. He operates in the spiritual realm. We operate in the physical realm. But that doesn't mean we can't engage and defeat him in battle. And we can, if we'll do these two things, if we'll submit ourselves to God, which is simply calling out to him, invoking his presence through prayer, maybe fasting, and then resisting the devil. Again, this can be a defensive posture, but at times it can be an offensive stance. And then the, finally, the fifth P, the plunder, verses 24 to 30. When Judah came to the watchtower, so they send out the choir and the army, and somehow, somewhere, we don't know how it happened, but God confused the enemy, and one turned on the other nation, and then after defeating them, Turned, the other two turned on each other, and they killed everyone. So, after that, says that uh, when, when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three stinking days. Picking up plunder. All right? That's how much it was. The spoil was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of the place that had been called the valley of Baraka to that day, uh, could that not be drawn near to God and he will draw near to you? That's the next step of those instructions written 2,300 years later, but here we see him, here we see him doing it here. Then they returned every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the fear of God came on all of the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had, had fought against the enemies of Israel. In other words, word got out. Man, compared to uh, uh, the people coming against Judah, I don't, know who the, I don't know who their God is, but we better not mess with him. All right? So the realm of Jehoshaphat, verse 30, was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So question, if God was going to fight for them and the choir was going to march out to engage the enemy first, why even send out the army? Pick up the booty. Three, we know there was a lot, there were three days, man, all they had to do was pick up Rolexes and the, the Louis Vuitton and the Calvin Klein man purses and nurses or whatever they call those things, all the booty. Three days. That's why the army went. They pick up all that booty. Right? Again, we're not told exactly how it happened. Maybe they sang, maybe they sang Psalm 116. His mercy endures forever. Praise the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's all we're told. That's all we're told. Somehow, some way, God caused the enemy armies to be confused as they began to sing to God. And after it was all said and done, after the dust had settled, there was so much bounty, it took him three days to pick it up. So what do we do when the devil comes knocking? Well, when you understand that anything that threatens you or your family is at its root spiritual, a person who understands that, 
there's a definite relationship. When you understand there's this relationship between the physical and spiritual realm, and there are times where the words of Jesus ring loud and clear when he said, the kingdom of God allows for violence and the violent break in upon it. Jesus said that, by the way. Jesus said that. And if you'll approach your battles that way and move into those circumstances where the devil would seek to eat you up, destroy your tomorrow, and the Lord says, on your tomorrow, I'm going to be with you. You don't need to fight. I'll fight for you. If you'll do your part, if you'll submit yourself to God, commit yourself to seeking him, humbling yourself before him, and then resist the enemy, I'll fight for you. I'll manifest myself on your behalf. What a promise, people. What a promise. But it doesn't just happen. We've got to posture ourselves. And the word of the Lord to Jehoshaphat was responded to with a faith that resulted from a priority of first submitting to God through a time of fashion and prayer and then resisting the enemy. Again, in this case, the resistance was a little unorthodox, but it was based on the word of God to them, right? The great reformer, Martin Luther, was asked one time how he overcame the devil. He replied, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out now. I live here now. The devil, seeing the nail prints in the hands and the pierced side, turns around and takes flight. I thought that was pretty good. Let's all stand. Bow your heads, please. If you're here this morning and you have uh, never opened up your heart to receive love and forgiveness that God offers us through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now. It's a very simple thing. You know, God will honor a sincere heart. It says if you uh, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. And yes, there is a sense in which that confession, but, but it's not just because you're saying a certain word. You're not sloganeering your way. You're not parroting your way into the kingdom. It has to come from a genuine heart of faith. Where, Yeah, you say that, but you have to really believe it in your heart. And so if you're here this morning and you've never prayed that prayer and meant it, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that I, I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of what, what you, you've called me to do. And I pray, Father, that you would come into my life, come into my heart, help me to begin to live my life for you. And uh, help me begin to begin to make choices and decisions that will Help me to accomplish your will. Help me to not be so selfish, Lord. Help me to just do what you've called me to do and what you want me to do. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, if you've, if you prayed that prayer, I, I want to ask you if you would either go tell someone, you can come tell me and say, hey, Pastor, I prayed that prayer. Or there's those cards on the back of the chair. There's a place on you you can indicate that, yes, I prayed that prayer. You can drop it off at that next step desk, and we want to follow up and help you in this new relationship with the Lord. For everyone else, Lord, I do pray that when, when the enemy comes knocking, when the devil comes knocking on our door, that you would help us to be mindful of these things, these instructions uh, that are tried and true. Uh, I mean, 2,300 years before James wrote them, we, we see them work, Lord. So we know it's a, it's a divine principle that will always work if we'll just posture ourselves and be well in Lord, so that the next time the devil comes knocking, that we would first submit ourselves to you, however that looks for us, humbling ourselves, calling out to you in prayer, and maybe even fasting if you call us to do that. 
And then after doing that, Lord, that you would just help us to resist and watch the devil flee. So thank you, Father, for your care and concern over us. Thank you for instructions for how to defeat the enemy when he comes knocking. And thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to call me out of this world into your kingdom of light. Pray these things in your name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Go with the Lord. And don't forget, uh, next Sunday, 4 o'clock, up at the Baptist Church, will be a water baptism. So that's going to be open to everyone. It's going to be a very, very informal. It's probably not going to take real long. Uh, but, uh, but they did make, offer us to use their, their sanctuary. Uh, and so uh, that's where we're going to go ahead and do that. It was either that or go out to the beach at Hillsdale, which is what we usually do. Only we usually do that in August, not November. So I guess I could, you know, chisel through the ice and, uh, you know. <laughs> All right, go with the Lord. <laughs>